<sighs> All right, man. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, we had a long night last night getting back home and everything. It was Heather's birthday, and we went into the city, and Metro Ride took forever. It just felt like hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on the Metro. What? Uh, the Metro Rides only are like 15, 20, 30 minutes max. Yeah, I know. It was just weird. Like, it lasted for hours, and we saw this weird lady standing in the middle of the train car with a baby, and she was dressed in white. You know, Heather was, like, shoving pie in her mouth. All of a sudden, I, like, just jumped out of the moving train car and then reappeared 15 minutes later. Yeah, it was real weird, but uh, we're we're back. We got home late. Was your little brother there uh, hurling very problematic dated insults? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, yep. good times. Weird family dynamics going on, but uh, we're night. We, we made yeah. it home. Good yeah, times. I think I see the the woman in white actually uh, standing behind you with that baby. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, the cowardly co-host Derek, and my co-host, mm-hmm. movie monster boy Aaron, sleepy boy, <laughs> sleepy boy today, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. This is just a me and you episode. We've had some big ones. You know, Patrick Bromley for yeah. 100 and Hellraiser with Cullen Bunn before that. And then we just did our blood raid with Jonathan. Before we really dig into our big Christmas episode, we uh, we wanted to take a little detour, so to speak, for another Christmas themed horror movie. Although Christmas doesn't really have much to do with this. Uh, it's just more of the backdrop of the movie. Yeah. So this is a little bit more of a low key episode with more of a low key movie uh, that kind of came out of left field. But, you know, before we get to discussing that movie, like always, let's let's just hop right in there and like, let's go straight into our recommendations section where we discuss other movies, TV, books, video games, anything horror related that you and I have been getting into lately so we can share with each other and hopefully you, our audience, here's something that you want to check out. Uh, Aaron, what scary stuff have you been getting into lately? So weirdly enough, I do not have any horror movies to discuss, which is definitely a rarity for me. Yeah, I have been kind of deep into some TV stuff. I mean, we've been watching Andor and Great British Bake Off. <laughs> the horrors of British baking. Yeah. Specifically when they tried to do Mexican food. Yeah, exactly. That fucking lady saying guacamole is just <laughs> yeah. in my lexicon yep. now. I'll say the most disturbing thing we've been watching, honestly, has been this show called Under the Banner of Heaven on Hulu, which is a true crime procedural about a murder that took place in the 80s in the like hardcore Mormon community. And so the entire thing is just about how this one family went way off the fundy deep end and how the church was actively trying to cover everything up and sweep it all under the rug and just how institutionally fucked Mormonism with, you know, the proper TM really is. Is this the one that Andrew Garfield's currently starring in? Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking yeah, about. Very, very good. Definitely kind of rough to watch and just aggravating in a lot of ways. But, uh, you know, not strict horror, but that one is definitely worth checking out. Where I was really going with this is I have not watched a lot of horror movies lately. I've definitely been in like, okay, we're watching other movies mode. I mean, we went and saw Black Panther and I've gotten a lot of other movies in recently. I've been 
Nolan chugging through some bad Roger Moore Bond movies. So just other stuff. But what I want to talk about, I have two things. The first is a book that was a very quick run through. I, I listened to it on audiobook. That's just the mode I'm in at this point in my life. But it seemed like a very short book. This is Tender is the Flesh by Agustina Bastarica. Uh, she is an Argentinian writer. This book came out in 2017. It was just recently translated into English in 2020. Yeah, I saw this recently be popping up as of the last year or two on a lot of people's best horror novels of the year. It's interesting. I will say I get the gimmick. I get what you're doing. The entire book is very much a critique of industrialized farming. So this is kind of a weird post-apocalypse, I guess, where all animals were infected with a virus that is deadly to humans. When I say all animals, I mean like all animals. This is just like a weird plague that spread amongst animals. And so immediately it was like, well, shit, we can't eat pork, beef, chicken, fish, nothing, right? So this is just to serve man, the dystopian setting? Basically. Yeah. <laughs> so cannibalism becomes legal. Soylent green. Yeah. yeah. Taken to an even more horrific degree because it's not like, okay, world overpopulation, what do we do with all these extra people? Well, as they die, let's mm -hmm. turn them into Soylent Green and refeed them back to people. This is just straight up, we are now breeding humans selectively for processing and slaughter. So it is actual human beings that are being cattle raised and bred specifically, you know, they are all kept in ways that are super inhumane and, you know, treated in all these ways that you as the reader find to be repellent. You know, you're supposed to be horrified by these things, but really it's like, well, think about the fact that all this is real and we do actually do all this stuff just to animals. Like, isn't that so bad? You know, I totally get what the book is doing. Uh, I think, you know, where I was not necessarily as affected by it is I cook. My wife cooks. We are both into food. We are both fully aware, you know, of how bad modern industrialized farming is. You know, we are very much aware of all the horrors of like how we treat animals within our food system. So none of right. it was like new or shocking to me necessarily. It was a lot of, you know, okay, yeah, it seems real gross and inhumane when you're doing this to a person. So why is it okay if we do it to an animal? And I get it. I think morally where I come down on all of it is day to day we have to make decisions about literally everything in our lives and every decision that we make has compromises. Like that's just the unfortunate side effect of living in a modern post-capitalist society is every decision we make has consequences somewhere down the line that we have to own. And, you know, food is certainly one of those things. You know, even going full vegetarian or vegan has its downsides as well. And there's lots of... Okay, well, yes, you're not harming animals necessarily, but lots of people are affected in bad ways with those kinds of diets as well. Those kinds of diets are also not super conducive to like keeping the earth, you know, in working form. So, you know, I, I, th I think this book didn't have the impact on me that it has had on a lot of people simply because I'm just very aware of what the food situation already looks like. And I have kind of morally made peace with the fact that, again, compromise decision making is 
what we have to live with nowadays. And so, you know, I try to do my best to source our food from places where animals are not treated terribly. Do you think part of the book, too, is kind of critiquing that idea? And, and I'm not saying, I mean, we all are guilty of it to an extent, but like, do you think it's also a critique on like throwing your hands up? Oh, totally, totally. It, the book yeah. is very, very much about apathy as well. The whole idea is the main guy in the book, his family has been running a slaughterhouse that has been now converted over to utilizing humans from breeders and then they're processing them. He is finally starting to like really fully pull away from all of it and just kind of waking up to the horror of it. The protagonist is also dealing with the loss of his child and his wife has subsequently left him as a result. So he's dealing with all this familial stuff while also kind of waking up to the horrors of what his family has been complicit in this entire time. And the book is very much about how you have a lot of people who are just very apathetic and have just kind of willingly moved over to like, eh, whatever, people meet, not a big deal. And then you have a whole chunk of people also who are kind of gleefully jumping into it because this is finally that weird dark door that they've been able to open for themselves. And so there's a lot of characters in this story that are like supremely just sinister and have that evilness to them and now they're finally able to kind of get away with the thing that they've always wanted to do you know this whole time so it's very interesting it is definitely gross it is definitely graphic it is definitely challenging um, if you are willing to kind of really dive into thinking about your own decision making just the idea of like yeah how fucked up would it be if we had to result to this. COVID has challenged everybody worldwide in the last couple of years and put everybody through various gauntlets of, oh shit, how much can we actually deal with and take in various ways? How much isolation can we deal with? How much? Well, and that's the other side of it, because like you, you said, that the backdrop is there's a virus yeah. that has made every animal deadly to eat to humans yeah so like there's that whole backdrop of an outbreak too in post-covid world yeah. so now what if covid was escalated to the entire next level and there was a whole new layer of like oh shit yeah. added to it you know how would humanity react to that so it's definitely interesting i would say so again yeah that is tender as the flesh by augustina Bastarica. the other thing I would want to talk about for a lot of people that are listening, they're probably going to be like, yeah, you fucking idiot. Duh, you didn't know. <laughs> that happens sometimes on our show. So. <laughs> so I don't live on the internet in the way that a lot of people do. I just don't. I, I have no serious social media presence. I haven't used my Facebook in years. I'm not really active on Twitter. I don't have TikTok. I don't have Instagram, right? Like I just, I, I don't care. So I just don't get deep off into the weirdness of the internet. So where this is unlocking a lot of things for me is the deeper I got into this concept, the more I realized like, oh shit, there's a lot of stuff I like. And the reason why I like it is because it's all tied to this one concept. That's where it's working for me. Even specifically to the point of two nightmares that I've had in the last couple of years linking back to this idea. Are you about to get into the SCP? That 
as an aspect of what I'm about to talk about. Yeah. So because yeah, we've never talked about SCP Foundation on our show, but it is one of those things that anyone who has any know of creepy pasta and internet horror knows the SCP, and it's gotten to the point now where the SCP is branching out in like people are actually like tapping it for video games and books and shit. Yeah. yeah. Control is basically the SCP, by oh, the way. Way more than control. Way more than just control. So let's yeah. let's stop there. Yeah. Where I got into this whole thing is I went down a fucking rabbit hole on Reddit about backrooms. So this is here's another weird synchronicity because I brought this up to Sean Gremion, a friend of the show. He hasn't been on our show, but he he listens. And I, I've been meaning to watch these series of YouTube videos. But there is a guy, I think his name is Kane Pixels. Yes. Who has done the backrooms found footage videos. And like the first one is the one that has like millions of views on it. And he every so often puts out sequel found footage of people exploring the backrooms, which is a, a liminal space as well, by the way. And I'm sure you'll get in all this. I have the video right here on one of my tabs and I haven't watched it yet, but I was planning on bringing this up, this at least this video series up on a future episode once I actually watch the YouTube video. So it's very weird that you're bringing up the backrooms on our our show right now yeah because you and i have not talked about this at all so it is it is no weird that this and this is up. something i followed for a while yeah it is yeah. weird that we are both looking at this kind of right now dude i sent these videos to sean grubby on like literally two or three weeks ago and it's been on my mind since then so again we, we keep throwing out terms and titles and stuff to back up for people who are not aware the back rooms was kind of this weird creepypasta phenomenon that really first appeared on like 4chan a couple of years ago. The entire idea is creepy, empty, liminal spaces that seem architecturally wrong. Like, there's hallways or doors or openings that seem to not necessarily be able to exist or go anywhere. Light seemingly emanates from places where there's no source of light. Or vice versa, there's like extreme darkness. Like, imagine looking down a hallway of just endless black and the creepiness of, okay, cool, now walk down that. Just keep going, you know? And like, where does it end? Does it have an end? Are there weird turns that you don't realize? You know, just And then a lot, a lot of times when there is light, it's like very distorted fluorescence. So there's like a weird... Unnatural quality. Tint yeah. to it or, yeah, natural quality. It's not like sunlight. It's like an artificial kind of thing, yeah. Well, and, and a liminal space, for those of you who... Who also don't really know what that is. Think of any time you've gone into an office building, specifically one that was built in the 80s or 90s and like hasn't been updated that much. But like any empty office building, like when you're walking through the hallways of an office building and there's no windows anywhere, there's just doors to offices and then nothing's really like labeled. So you're it almost feels like a little bit of a maze. Everything's overly generic. Yeah. Carpeted, just plain wallpaper, just any generic ass office setting that is a liminal space you could just google liminal spaces and like look at the google image search and you'll get an idea think of conference rooms at hotels yeah where, like it's not really a hotel room but it's not really an office building either it's a weird in-between space 
imagine the weird hallways that exist behind storefronts at a shopping mall, yeah. for instance, right? Just those kinds of places they shouldn't exist and they're just way too generic the back rooms specifically this is the quote from wikipedia on it characterized by the smell of moist carpet so you you know that weird cold mildewy smell that certain old hotel rooms have walls with monochromatic kind of mostly yellowish tones, Mm -hmm. right? And then you always kind of hear the buzzing of fluorescent light bulbs. Just that artificiality, right? And this whole phenomenon is also known as canopsia, which is the eerie, forlorn atmosphere of a place that's usually bustling with people, but is now abandoned and quiet, which we have discussed that on the show several times, that that idea is very creepy, and it's very unsettling. I have a specific memory of this, and I think I brought it up on one of our very first episodes when we used to share like personal experiences of fears and phobias. We don't really do that anymore on this show, but I remember telling you that story of we were all still in the dorm rooms. It was my freshman year. I was hungover. It was like 2 a.m. Everyone was asleep. I woke up dehydrated as fuck, and there was no water in our dorm room. So I actually left our dorm room and walked down the hallway of our dorm room to get water, and that's where I felt this there was fucking no one around all i could hear was the buzz it felt like something was watching me i know that sounds ridiculous but you feel like you're being observed yeah yeah and not like a ghost but i mean like something is observing me and where this really got creepy is after i got water the fucking tornado sirens started blaring because it was storming outside and i like ran to our dorm room and like went back into bed and no one else woke up so i was just like yeah. i'm going to go to sleep now and hopefully not die so like yeah that memory is what the back rooms drags out of my hind brain i know i've mentioned it as well but my kind of experience with this was being very young and being at our or church after hours going with my mom when she was playing piano and they were having like choir practice and I would just wander around the church and then like it's empty the church is empty there's nobody there pretty much all the lights are turned off and anyone who's done like youth group shit or whatever like when you're walking in the backs of a church it is very much just like an empty office space most of the time yeah it's really unsettling and weird in that sense so i got way down into this rabbit hole about this entire concept right And what it started, A, going that deep down this rabbit hole, I then discovered the whole idea of where backrooms originated, which again, 4chan, right? Somebody literally posted a picture of this weird conference room hallway thing that doesn't really make sense. And it was just a weird off-putting picture where you can't really see around this wall and around this corner as far as what's there and it just kind of makes you feel uneasy right it was just accompanied with this text if you're not careful and you no clip out of reality in the wrong areas which no clipping is like a video game term where you go out of the boundaries of the video game like a graphical error yeah like you'll accidentally walk through a wall that you shouldn't be able to and then all of a sudden you can like see the framework and the coding and the code yeah of the level right and like the back rooms are basically like what if you saw the matrix but what's actually the matrix is fucking terrifying glitchy windows 95 nightmare like office space yeah so if you're not careful and you no clip 
out of reality in the wrong areas, you'll end up in the back rooms, where it's nothing but the stink of old moist carpet, the madness of mono yellow, the endless background noise of fluorescent lights at maximum hum buzz, and approximately 600 million square miles of randomly segmented empty rooms to be trapped in. God save you if you hear something wandering around nearby, because it sure as hell has heard you. And that's all that was accompanied with this photo. Mm -hmm. And that, like, one nugget really set people off, and people kept reposting it and building on this whole idea. And now it's to the point where, like, there are multiple levels of the back rooms with different characteristics and entities. Pools are, like, a weird aspect of this, too. Like, like swimming pools. Imagine if you've ever been at a weird fucking resort or hotel that had like an indoor swimming pool that was shaped really weird yeah. and had really weird dark areas that you're kind of afraid to go in, like a weird dark yep. alcove area of the pool. And you just, for some reason, don't want to go there. It's like a weird evolutionary instinct that tells you like dark water is bad, right? I I've even been in like big office buildings that in the big lobby area. And you can stretch up and see like almost like a spiral around you, all the different floors. Yeah. But even those kind of like lobby areas, sometimes they have those weird pools that kind of make no sense and are kind of a weird, strange, like architectural feature yeah. decoration for the lobby. Yeah. So, you know, from here, people started really going with this whole idea and it became this viral kind of internet urban legend thing. So there was a Twitter user named Gearbox Gunman who uploaded videos that were like 3D rendered weird endless hallways and shit like that. Kane Pixels is who you mentioned a second ago. Yeah, K-A-N-E Pixels is on YouTube. In my opinion, from what I've seen, they have the best internet representation representation that's not photos but video of what the back rooms is kind of like a good representation of what it is well these videos were also kind of building out a weird mythology because these were all yeah quote-unquote exploration found footage videos right yeah supposedly they're like from the 90s yeah i found another person on youtube called matt studios who was also doing kind of these lo-fi vhs 3d rendered versions of them and again they're just super unsettling and weird because it's just architecturally all these things that don't make sense and you know again going into these like dark weird areas that just make you feel really unsettled and the more that i dug into is then i discovered like we said earlier the scp foundation which has been around even longer that was a weird collaborative writing project that originated on 4chan in 2007. And one of the few like good things to originate out of 4chan, mind you, I will say. Yeah, really. <laughs> the entire idea of this is the foundation is responsible for capturing and containing various paranormal, supernatural, and other mysterious phenomena unexplained by mainstream science, which are known as anomalies or SCPs. And a lot of the SCPs are like kind of what you saw again in the video game Control. It's like, oh, this random refrigerator from 1975 has been teleporting people into an unknown dimension and you, it drips blood every so often. And you hear screams coming from it. Shit like that. <laughs> the SCP wiki site, which is where people have been like collaborating and adding to this whole yep. mythology, right? It has thousands of these fake 
scientific government reports detailing all these various phenomena. And each single one is, like you said, a detailed report. Sometimes there's pictures added to it. There's logs of events happening with these objects. Again, it's stuff like anything from the back rooms to a SCP that is even God themselves, apparently, and then just random other shit. The one that I found interesting, because I just barely scratched the surface of this, is a coffee machine that can literally dispense anything that can be found in liquid form. Anything that can be liquid, this coffee machine can spit it out, including concepts. And whatever the liquid is, it doesn't seem to have any effect on the styrofoam cups that the machine dispenses, which is just like another weird kind of touch. But there's also on this wiki site, there are what are called foundation tales detailing the lives and exploits of these fictional characters that have been created over the years to this whole thing. And so, yeah, this is like a whole other weird sub thing that has been going on now for 15 years. And the more I started thinking about it, then I was like, holy shit, the creepypasta with staircases in the wilderness is 100% some backrooms shit. House of Leaves, mm-hmm. 100% some backrooms shit. Season two, No End House, and season three, Butcher's Block, which is also staircases that lead to nowhere. Both of those seasons of Channel Zero, Backrooms shit. Jordan Peele's Us. Once you really kind of figure out the extent of what's happening in that movie, very much some Backrooms shit. And then recently, the Apple TV show Severance, it's the same exact kind of concept. There have been several indie video games that have spun off of this concept over the years. There are a couple different books. There are concept music albums. And like we said, the the one thing that we have brought up on this show a couple times is the video game Control, which is so fucking good. That is the most cohesive idea of the whole SCP Foundation. I mean, it's basically a video game based on all of that shit. Yeah, and even that is like tame compared to like what is actually on the actual SCP website. Yeah. So here, example, I just pulled one up randomly. SCP-7601. Description. SCP-7601 is an anomalous female Peking duck. It is able to extend the length of its neck indefinitely, reaching a recorded maximum of 4,520 kilometers long. There's more to the report after that, but the picture they're using is from like the window of an airplane up in the sky, like 30,000 feet. And it's just this like long neck of this duck going right by like the window. And it's just random shit like that. Like some of them are just harmless or fun and then others are like utterly like terrifying but in a way that only the internet could kind of come up with yeah um like it's not just otherworldly like you know lovecraftian gods like there are elements of that sure but it's like a lovecraftian god and like a toaster like you were saying synchronicity ironic you brought this up because there was just a game on kickstarter and the funding just ended but i'm sure i think there's a link on the kickstarter where you can still back them on another website like maybe a a late backer kit or something like that but the name of the game is called the store is closed and it's an infinite furniture survival game where like you're basically in a giant ikea that goes on and on a lot basically the back rooms is just forever goes on and there's quote-unquote staff members and the staff members are like horrific monsters 
canisters that are made out of wood and shit. <laughs> or if you go into like the warehouse area, there's like a bunch of like TV golems that are stalking the area. And in the children's section, there's a bunch of like children's furniture that have giant sharp razor teeth and will attack you in packs and stuff. The managers are these big juggernaut monsters. They also were saying, well, in the because this game was just kickstarted, still under development. I actually kickstarted it because I was fucking fascinated by it. They're adding to the game where like there are moments where you can actually escape into the back rooms itself and also where you can escape the containment and explore a little bit of the SCP Foundation as well. Um, and this is based off of a of an actual SCP. I don't know the name, which one specifically, but it's basically an infinite Ikea store that has people that are just regular human beings in there that are trying to survive and are being attacked by like these store managers and stuff. Hell and yeah. so they made an entire video game based off of that one SCP, uh, or they're making one rather. But yeah, the store is closed. Go check that out. And if it looks interesting to you, back them. Um, they reached funding and knocked out a few uh, funding goals. And it's going to be coming to not just PC, but I think it's coming to uh, PlayStation and Xbox as well. So 100%. This was some like wild shit to get into. I think we should just stop here. And let's revisit this in a couple of episodes once you've had time to catch up on the videos. And I want to dig deeper into it, certainly. Honestly, we could make a spinoff podcast, and I'm sure there's hundreds of there them already. There probably are already, yeah. Just about the backrooms and the SCP Foundation and everything. So yeah, because I don't necessarily live on the internet in the way that other people do, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who are like, yeah, no shit, you didn't know about this. But I will say, I have a feeling that this whole concept is going to become more and more and more mainstream and horror once it gets out of the internet a little bit more again through stuff like jordan peele's us severance big video games like control which they are now actively making a sequel to i think more and more people are gonna discover this concept and it's just gonna get even bigger and there's already such an iceberg under the surface that's there like i said i barely scratched the surface of this whole thing but enough that i was absolutely transfixed by the idea and i'm definitely gonna dig into it more but i definitely see this concept going very mainstream in the next couple of years easily way yeah. way way more so than like it is right now currently so yeah definitely excited to see what's going on with that because like i said i personally have had nightmares about this kind of shit that I've discussed with you and concepts for short films and stuff like that are short stories that involve this idea. So yeah, definitely curious to see where it goes. Just to give you all an idea, currently they're on the eighth series of SCPs on the SCP Foundation website. They have had eight series of these and each series is dozens and dozens and possibly hundreds of them. I'm looking at the first series right now and it's up to a thousand. Yeah, it's wild shit. Cool. All right. Well, that is all I'm going to talk about. We'll stop there. I've already gone on long enough. So, Derek, what have you got for us? I'll keep it very light then. Um, I'll talk about just one thing because I did not expect us to go on this tangent about the back rooms and SCP, but I do find that shit fascinating. So I'm glad we did. And I will probably talk more about the back rooms once I watch Kane Pixels videos. So we will bring this back up uh, the next few episodes. But I'm going to stick with one recommendation. So when I recommend comics, I like to usually wait until at least three or four issues are out or at least the first arc is done before I recommend a comic. 
Aaron, I know you more like to just read the whole thing and then recommend it. But I, I do. I do like to at least get a couple issues under my belt before I recommend something. I'm going to recommend a comic that only has one issue out. And it's because the first issue like floored me with how good it was. It was everything I kind of wanted and unexpectedly because I didn't know what to expect from the series. I'm curious to see what this is because I think I might actually know what you're about to say. Yeah, it's a series from Boom Studios called Damn Them All. By the time this episode drops i think at least the second or third issues should be out as well but right now i've only read the first issue first off part of the reason why i picked this book up is because the team on it is kind of a superstar team the main attraction arguably is the artist because the artist is the guy who did the walking dead artwork uh it's charlie adlard his style is all over this book just look at the main cover because there's a few covers to it but the cover a main cover uh that shows the main character on it is straight out of the walking dead in terms of design wise simon spurrier uh one of my favorite writers in comics is the writer on this he's done a lot of stuff but i know he's done work on hellblazer uh as far as more recent like horror related stuff goes colorist is sophie dodgson who uh, worked on bitter root and the letterer is jim campbell who's worked on the all new firefly comic that's been going on where to start with this book? Imagine a Guy Ritchie movie and the main character is kind of an anti-hero kind of a muscle for organized crime. It does feel straight up like a Guy Ritchie, even from the dialogue and everything in the setup. And then throw in demons. Sure. <laughs> and what I mean by that, this is like lesser key of Solomon styled using magic to summon demons. Like the demons aren't necessarily demons from hell. They're just otherworldly entities that you tap for favors or power or whatever. This is the magic. I don't want to say real magic, but like the idea of you have to fast for so many days and you have to do all these summoning circles just to like maybe catch a glimpse of like this otherworldly entity and like ask it to like give you good luck. We explored a lot of this in um, a dark song, actually, our episode on a dark song. But it follows this woman named Ellie. Her nickname is Bloody L. And she is basically an occultist for hire for organized crime. Her uncle was the one who was like the greatest and most infamous magician and occultist kind of detective style guy. And then when he passed away, Ellie kind of took over his role. People are now not even just low level occultists, but like regular like gangsters and stuff are now suddenly being able to summon the 72 devils of and I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce this of the Ars Goetia. And the Ars Goetia is one of the books of the Lesser Key of Solomon. And Lesser Key of Solomon, which is a big occult book and everything, is basically a grimoire of demonology, of all the demons that exist. Biblical Solomon was considered like the greatest magician in history, basically. And this is like where you see all those circles and like they have the symbols and the triangles and shit, everything. And like you're supposed to draw them on, on the floor and do all that. When a demon appears in this book, it is a force of nature appearing like in into a room if nobody's ready for it it like can blind everybody in a room like at one point in the first issue a demon unexpectedly gets summoned in the middle of this tavern in britain people are fucking like bleeding out of their eyes and stuff it's unexpected the demon design is very much like the historical artwork that you associate with these demons like that fucking lion that has all the fists around it like a circle yeah or like the big owl looking demon that has like an owl head and like the body of a human and and this is all kind of set up in the first issue and this is also the synopsis like when you look up the series basically 
Ellie is now going to track down these 72 demons because they're basically kind of freed from their realm unexpectedly. And she's basically trying to send them back and make it to where people can't just suddenly start summoning them willy nilly because the book even sets up in the beginning that it's like really fucking hard to summon demons. And like it, it costs like magic always has a price kind of set up. It's, it's just little fun character details, too, with like Ellie herself, with her being kind of an enforcer for the mob. She has like this mythology around her. Like she always carries a hammer around and she like uses a hammer when she's attacking someone. And people are convinced that like she uses that hammer to exercise demons. So like if she kills you with the hammer, like she has your soul and it's all kind of bullshit. But like she kind of just goes along with it. But she is a magician, so she does know like how to interact with these demons and everything. And I don't know, it's just, it's a really clever story. I was blown away with how the first issue was written. The first issue was pretty meaty. It's a lot of black comedy and just fuck you energy to like the world to it too, that I really vibed with. Not quite punk punk rock but sort of sure and again yeah it it just feels like guy Ritchie mixed with the demons i really enjoy it i had such a blast with this first issue i just decided i was gonna say fuck it and go ahead and recommend damn them all from boom studios like all together just off this first issue so yeah check it out it's ongoing right now i think i read that it's a six issue miniseries i'm not sure about that but yeah probably at least the first two issues are out by now go check it out go to your local shop and pick them up or buy them digitally or whatever but yeah boom studios damn them all oh yeah all right cool so let's get into the movie that we are discussing for this episode which is dead end from 2003 uh, which is a french not french movie not sure exactly like where the lines are there felt very american or canadian yeah directed by jean-baptiste andre and fabrice canapa this movie premiered in january 2003 at the gerard mayer film fest in france and then did not come out in the u.s until november of the following year um this was a huge movie movie on dvd but it's it's interesting it feels very twilight zony and uh this is one of the rare movies that i have not seen prior to going into this episode yeah this is a first watch for both of us yep i didn't know this movie existed until you mentioned it so uh i will say before we play the trailer clip Thank you to my man Dino that I used to work with. This is one that he recommended to me a year or two, maybe even more than that ago. Basically, once he found out that we did this show, he was like, oh, hell yeah, you got to do this movie. And I was just like, cool, never heard of it. I'll put that on the list. Sure. This was definitely a surprise. So Dino, if you're listening, thanks. This was a good recommendation. Yeah, thank you for the recommendation. And yeah, here is a sneak peek of what we're getting into. else just like the least bit freaked out that we are the only car on the road right now it's 7 30 already darling yes i'm aware of that laura i thought we'd come to a junction by now stop i saw a woman in the forest cool dad's tripping out oh my god what the hell was that What are you talking about? I saw Dad in a car. Who are these people in the woods? Don't come over here for God's sake. I'm pregnant. 
I smoke pot. Talk about a merry fucking Christmas. What if she gets it first? Who? Lady in white. Don't worry. She's dead. I'm gonna go now. Yeah. So, even though it's not a Christmas episode, this movie does technically take place on Christmas Eve, although Christmas is very much an afterthought, I would say. Yeah, it's the framing device for this entire story. Yeah. Which I have seen on a lot of lists of best holiday horror movies. You know, when you and I are like planning out this show, we've been trying to get ideas of stuff to cover and stuff to cover at certain times of the year. There are a shit ton of Christmas related horror movies. There are also just as many horror movies that take place around Christmas that aren't explicitly based around the trappings of Christmas, right? For every Krampus and Christmas Evil and, you know, Santa's sleigh, there is Dead End, there is a P2, you know, there are are things that are low-key Christmas movies. Like winter movies, even. Well, to me, this felt more holiday-specific, you know, Thanksgiving or even Christmas, simply because they are on their way to meet with more family, specifically for, like, a Christmas get-together. Also, the idea of being stuck with your family, which you may or may not like your family, right? That entire idea is very... It's very awkward. Yeah, holiday-centric especially. You know, so, like, all of that is always kind of fun and interesting. What I will just go ahead and say is this. I really did not like this movie when it first started. I I was very, very like, okay, what the fuck is this? I kind of hate the editing. The music is terrible. All of these characters are awful. I love Lin Shay and I love Ray Wise. So they were the two that I was in the bag for. The kids, you know, that are traveling with them. The son especially. I was just like, no, nah, I'm done. I can't, I can't fucking handle this character. The little, yeah, the son was, was the one where, at the beginning where I was really like, I don't know if I could get through the whole movie with this guy. Yeah. And at first I was thinking like, oh man, is this going to be an early aughts, really dated, and I'm just not going to be able to get through it kind of movie? And And we're going to regret this and I'm going to have to find something new for us to do at the last minute. But as the movie went on, it got funnier in like a really dark, fucked up way. And it became more and more and more clear that, hey, audience, you know what's going on. Yeah. Let's not even fucking play around with that. Because right off the bat, the very beginning of this movie, I was like, wait, that's what's happening? Okay, like, I know where this is going. Yeah, there's there's a scene involving, let's just say lights. Because <laughs> if I tell you what it's involving, it's uh, going to give it away immediately. After that happens, all the characters are like, whoa, that was weird. Or that was crazy, huh? You know, like, what's happened. Yes. It makes it pretty clear from the beginning what's happening. But I like the fact that the movie then does not keep trying to kind of keep you in the dark. Yeah. You know, it only doubles down on what is actually going on, and it doesn't try to, like, play coy about it whatsoever, but the characters 
in the story are still unaware of what's happening because they are in the moment dealing with the whole crisis. They're the only people who are not clued into what's actually going on, but you as the audience, you're fully aware what the gimmick is in this movie. Well, to be fair, because I do think maybe a part of it is that A, because my horror movie consumption has gone way up since we started this show, and just being a, a general consumer of pop culture and like just knowing tropes really well same with you and you definitely being a huge movie watcher in general i think there might be people out there casual viewers people who don't necessarily watch a lot of movies or just either don't care or just not tuned into that who might get caught by this like i guess a little bit of the twist to me the movie does make it obvious and it's not trying to psych you out it's not trying to be like m night Shyamalan movie where the twist is the important thing or like the catalyst of the plot it is more like here's what happened to them you know what's going on. They don't yes. watch how their dynamic and their family relationship falls apart while they're they're slowly piecing everything together. And I think that's what the movie's more concerned with. You know, horror or newbies in general. You know, I would say if you go and watch this and you're surprised by like what happens by the end of the movie, don't feel bad that you might have missed the twist or something. You know, I I think there are people out there who might just watch a movie and not really think about that while it's happening, and then are taken aback by like what happens at the by the end so like if you're one of those people i would say like don't feel bad about it but if you are someone who watches enough movies especially horror or ghost stories in general and you hit the 15 minute mark and you're like oh, yeah fuck, like, i know where this is going uh gross yeah no no stick with it yeah because it just kind of compounds on that and becomes more interesting and that's what i was saying it's a very tired trope but the execution on this tired trope is worth the watch initially i was very very, uh, that's all there is. Uh, mm. But as I kind of let it continue to unfold, that was clearly not what the movie was about. And the movie does not try to keep that whole trope hidden from you either. So I, I at least appreciated the fact that the movie knows what game it's playing and it's very upfront about that. And I just kind of let myself get pulled into the characters and just kind of the surreality of the situation. And like I said, a lot of the dark humor. Bruh, Lynn Shay in this movie had me fucking dying with yeah. how weird she was. Just some of the nonsense that she gets up to was hilarious. It also gets creepy as fuck really quick with her delivery and like her holding the shotgun scene or her like seeing her friends outside in the car and the way she's describing that it gets pretty creepy at points too I will say up top too, uh, just kind of, I guess, a little trigger warning with it being an Ots movie, I guess, but also with the little brother character being a little shithead. He makes a lot of tasteless jokes specifically towards queer people. Yeah, and uh, it's very dated. It, it's pretty problematic. And and he's not the only one. I think uh, Ray Weiss's character makes a couple of remarks, too, that are pretty dated. I think everybody does in this movie. So Also, none of these characters are meant to be likable. So keep that in mind as well, too. These are all meant yeah. to be terrible people yeah so like it, it does have a little bit of early aughts we still are using language that we shouldn't be using and it's acceptable problematic kind of behavior there's a bit of the of it in this movie but it's not a lot thankfully and it kind of gets nipped in the butt pretty quickly in the movie but just know that going in horror newbies this is such a strange bag because like on one hand there was a jump scare that scared the living shit out of me i will admit <laughs> that i did not expect i mean i i expected it happening but the way they delivered it was 
just well done. Let's just say it involves a match and I'll leave it at that. But uh, this movie is insanely creepy. So here's my kind of thesis on this movie. I liked it overall. I liked it. I've been thinking about it since watching it. It's a movie that I want to go back and rewatch. Of the movies we've seen, it is more on the interesting side. It is more on the thought provoking side of the movies we've tackled on our show. There's a lot of tonal whiplash in this movie. Sure. And like that's what doesn't work with this movie for me. And I don't know if it is because it's an aughts horror movie, an early aughts horror movie because it does have that aughts energy like you were saying Aaron like with editing horrible soundtrack and I don't like a lot of aughts horror as it is and this has a lot of that energy to it to me it felt like the movie doesn't know if it wants to be a horror comedy or comedic horror movie or just a straight up really kind of fucked up psychological takedown of this family yeah it has very big first movie energy, which that's what it is for sure. It's definitely somebody who had an interesting idea for a script, but is still figuring out how to execute on tone and just all those other things that takes practice and learning nuance for sure. I was looking over our past episodes after watching this, and this movie might be the biggest tonal whiplash movie I think we've ever covered. At parts, it felt like one of the more serious, fucked up, darker horror movies we've done. And then at other parts, it was like Blood Rage-esque level of ridiculous humor to it. I appreciate both those things, but it commits to neither one of them and instead tries to like do them both at the same time, but doesn't really merge them in like a a fun way. Again, I liked this movie. I'll get to the positives, but I wanted to get the negatives off the bat. And something I did like what this movie does is it doesn't explicitly show you everything that's happened to certain people. It's just more focusing on the reactions of others. Yeah. And you're only seeing like a glimpse of the carnage. There's something very unsettling about that because their delivery especially from like ray weiss and lynn shay the more experienced actors in this movie you're seeing like through their reactions like the description of what they're looking at is really unsettling and it has stuff like that and has violence towards younger people even and like really fucked up notions on family and traveling and then you throw in a joke of Lin Shay like fucking digging into a pie with, <laughs> with her, her hands, hands in the back seat <laughs> and literally cut from like here's a spoiler for this movie her witnessing like one of her children dying and then her revealing to the family like this really fucked up thing involving an affair and whether this child was the child of Ray Wise or Ray Wise's friend yeah and then like it cuts from that straight to her being like anybody want pie to me it, it just took away like the impact of what was just revealed i don't know like i think some people would classify this as a horror comedy and i don't think that's right to me i think the meat and bones of this movie is a dark horror movie that just has comedic elements but the comedic elements are burrowed into this movie and they kind of jump out at you like unexpectedly in these wild tonal shifts also the soundtrack doesn't do any favors with the tonal shifts the soundtrack is the thing that i hated the most honestly the soundtrack yeah the soundtrack is is It's not good. (laughs) Yeah, this is bad, smooth nightclub music that borderlines on like bad Euro techno. Hated the fucking soundtrack. Slow down. You were going to kill us all. You saw a car driving by and Brad was in the back of it? Yes. I don't get that. What? Shut 
it, it's like late '90s vampire club techno yeah, music. I fucking hated the soundtrack <laughs> for this. Then you had like douche rock whenever he had his like headphones in. Yeah, and I'll I'll jump back into the score for this momentarily because I I found a weird thing there. So yeah, overall, I'll kind of take the same approach. What I did not like about this movie, score, first of all, score is terrible. It has a lot of music video-esque editing that things had in the early 2000s. There are a lot of jump cuts. Yeah, not as bad as Mothman Prophecies, but pretty close. It feels like that. It feels like Saw. It just has that every angle is a canted angle and there's like a big light flash and a sound that goes wow like fucking mountain lions roaring over it well and there's even that part where like he looks in the carriage and like he's acting like he's being attacked by something in the baby carriage and there's even like, like monster sounds sound yeah. design makes monster sounds like help it reinforce the false jump scare nature yeah. i guess but like it's like that wasn't needed i think too every time that they get out of the car and like go to the cabin for instance the cabin is clearly a facade it's clearly like we built a one-sided fake building that we can only shoot from this one angle and that's the cabin we watched 20 minutes of texas chainsaw massacre let's make a cabin that kind of basically okay. yeah right <laughs> like that aspect was kind of unnecessary just to even have that element just keep it on this weird again perfect for this episode liminal space of just this endless country road, right? We don't need the cabin. And they could have used a different marker to like show in that one yeah. way they came to the same place. Yeah. It literally only serves the purpose of doubling back around and like, oh, we've been here before. No, it's the same cabin. Whatever. I think my other big beef with this movie, I'm trying to think of like a nice way to phrase this. It's one thing when you want to get unknown actors or you want to get kind of low key, cheaper, up and coming actors. It's a whole different thing altogether when you're getting people at the caliber of the son that's in this. He was awful. Yeah. He's easily one of the worst actors I've ever seen. Although I will say like when he's trying to like get his sister to snap out of it kind of early on in the movie that was a decent scene for him but otherwise i completely agree with you <laughs> if we're talking whiplash it's rough going from lynn shay who's so naturalistic and ray wise who is always like a little bit heightened but has kind of a certain authority and affluence to his performances that kind of gives him a like credibility he's very good at playing problematic dad yeah very yeah. good at it <laughs> and also weird that the wife is named laura in this from yeah. twin peaks heads out there but uh it's wild going from the two of them where they are so good at doing this kind of thing and they are both so good together and then having them juxtaposed against the son and frankly the daughter's not that great the woman in white actress who is not really despite her being in some big movies which is wild she's a model first and foremost so she doesn't necessarily have training as an actress i would say so like her line deliveries are all terrible that's where the biggest tone whiplash came from me was you can find better people you can find much more qualified people so like the casting in this movie is maybe the weakest point to me because you've got two staples of the genre who are like severe 
severe veterans have crazy good careers behind them. And then you're going to put them with literally the most I'm 27 acting like I'm 13 douchebag, you know, and it just doesn't fucking work. And knowing what young people stars there were at this time that could have been in this movie potentially, that's the other thing that becomes more frustrating is you could have had a really solid cast if we had just maybe gotten like better supporting role. Like if the kids in air quotes had all been maybe cast differently. Yeah, because Ray, Ray Wise and Lynn Shea, they carry this movie yeah. on their backs oh, and yeah. it's a hundred percent noticeable that they're the ones doing the heavy lifting. Yeah, absolutely. The one last thing I want to bring up that is a negative for me and it's a big one, but I wanted to wait to, at this like point because then we can discuss the actual movie and what does work because again, I r- actually really do like this movie. I dig it, but you have to know going in like the negatives and mind you uh, again, like uh, we've touched on the creep factor yeah horror newbies shit i don't know give it a chance it's a sort of a ghost movie kind of there is a couple jump scares it has a lot of creeping dread a lot of commentary on family being stuck with your family during the holidays and there being a lot of problems in the family under the surface and not always explored or talked about like they should be a lot of fears of traveling a lot of fears of you take a shortcut and the shortcut doesn't work out the way you you want it to yeah holiday fears <laughs> there you go horror movies so the last thing i want to bring up because it has to deal with the very end of the movie and this is like my last big complaint so if you don't want to like hear what happens at the very end of this movie jump ahead a few minutes as far as the tonal whiplash and the duality of this being a dark horror movie tragic horror movie and this being a comedy and kind of like an aughts attitude energy kind of horror movie that i don't necessarily dig i both love and hate the ending and that's a problem because while like the big reveal is obvious and it is a trope that like we all always joke about like they were dead the entire time yeah what happens with the daughter is actually kind of neat she survives obviously the woman in white was kind of fucking with the family maybe out of spite and revenge for like them killing her too and they're all like going off to the afterlife and like leaving the daughter behind and but the daughter's pregnant with the baby so there's a little bit of hope for the future the first thing she asks is the baby okay basically when she comes out of the coma loved all that i loved the part it actually comes like after some of the credits have played where it shows like two guys that are sweeping up the damage from the crash they find the letter that ray weiss was writing towards the end to signify like oh all this did happen but the letter the list he was making was really funny and a really touching moment because it's like you know one buy an atari and play atari yeah and then the second one is be the best grandfather i possibly can or something like that and like after all the shit that happened with them like you know ray weiss cheated on their mom the mom cheated on him he finds out that the son maybe is not his he straight up slaps his daughter after i guess kind of being possessed by the woman in white <laughs> dot, 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 yeah. dot, dot, dot. him nodding off is what killed all of them including this woman and her baby and his daughter was pregnant with a, a man she was planning on breaking up with you know despite all of that he was going to be the supportive grandfather through it all yeah even though their family is dead if they get out of this he wants to be there and that was such a good moment and then the movie fucking turns around and literally has the worker crumble the paper up throw it on the ground and then sweep it off and I'm like, you just killed like that entire like reveal to me, that gut punch reveal. And then the other thing that backing up a little bit, that's also happening in the end. Then the fucking doctor going out to her car, her car not starting. And then the guy who like came up on the crash in 
been discovered her still alive he checks in with the doctor and obviously he's hitting on her and she's into it he asks her hey do you want to ride and she gets in his car and dun 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 it's the hearse he's the grim reaper why is the doctor going into the grim reaper's car he makes that fucking comment like i'm a collector like yeah we get it you collect souls that was all (laughs) unnecessary they could have just her waking up from the coma and then the guys discovering the crash site and then him picking up the note it focuses on the note and either he like tucks it away and puts it in his pants and says like oh it was nothing or it just shows the note and then it cuts the credits yeah the fact that it immediately has him crumpled up like unceremoniously and toss it to the ground and then sweep almost in a way that is kind of like fuck you energy And then it cuts to like some kind of, again, terrible song choice for the soundtrack. It just felt like, what movie are you trying to be, Dead End? Yeah. Are you trying to be like this super serious, tragic, fucked up movie? Or are you trying to be like, haha, tongue in cheek, mid early aughts horror energy? That was my last big gripe was like that mixed bag ending. I would agree on both counts. I think it would have been more interesting just to see the guy in black go to his antique car, get in drive past in the parking lot and like wave to the doctor or something like that and then use the audience kind of like okay cool and then yeah then like crumpling up the note at the end and just kind of casually tossing it away it's definitely a fuck you to the audience for sure if they kept that way you could really understand i mean the movie does hint at this but you could take it that the grim reaper and or the woman in white or both of them did decide to spare her because she is pregnant with an unborn baby but the family did need to be punished in a way because of his mistake of nodding off at the wheel and killing her and her infant sure i will say i don't enjoy either of those decisions either i think where i struggle and this is just something that me as a movie viewer i have to like come to terms with is I have to push myself to just accept that like, well, that's the movie we have. So do I like it or do I not like it? That's fair too. Because I wish it had just been this. I I think it would have been better if it was just XYZ. That's fine. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's not going to change the movie at the end of the day because it's not what we wanted necessarily, but it just, it is what it is. Well, and I think my frustration comes because I do like so much of this movie. Sure. And I do like how it is otherwise done that I did feel like we had to highlight the flaws because the flaws are kind of glaring. But overall, and I think this can be the like stepping point into the positives and into the things that are successful about this movie and what make this a watch. And I will say overall, this is worth a watch. This is definitely a movie that even with its flaws, it's more thought provoking to me than a majority of movies I've seen. And it is a great first movie, I feel like. And it is a horror movie that you're not necessarily going to see like nowadays especially but just in general like while it hinges on this old trope of was i dead the entire time like it does it in a way that's really uh successful in it and just the whole family dynamic and the road travel with them is something we can all relate to especially on the holidays and it's all delivered very successfully and despite the tonal whiplashes lynn shea and ray weiss's performances alone make this movie i just i i feel like we really did have to capitalize on those flaws because there is a little bit of frustration because i do dig this movie so much that like i feel like the flaws if they weren't like they were it could be elevated to and i hate to use that because elevated horror is such a stupid term but this movie could have gone to the next level basically what's wild is this and again this is me being like what if 
this is a French movie, but not a French movie, like I joked about earlier. Yeah, that's that's so weird to me, too, yeah. What if this movie had been remade either by, like, another European director or if an American director had remade this with maybe a slightly different cast? You know, I, I think that this movie has potential to be something a little bit more, or... Let's go down a little bit. Like I mentioned, I think this is an excellent Twilight Zone episode, right? This is this very much has the feel of that kind of story. I think if you tightened it up, it could maybe still be really interesting if you had it in the right hands. Yeah, and in, in many ways, it is like a retelling of the Hitchhiker Twilight Zone episode, yeah. which is the one where the woman is being kind of followed by this weird hitchhiking guy. And then, oops, by the end, spoiler for this Twilight Zone episode, it turns out that she died and he's the Grim Reaper. Yeah. He's waiting for her to realize she's dead so they can like move on to the afterlife. There's a bit of that to it. And a lot of the reviews I was reading and analysis was that this is basically like a Twilight Zone episode, which also does make sense, I guess, a little bit with like some of the wild acting choices, because there are some wild acting choices in old Twilight Zone episodes if you go back and watch them. But again, the thing like going back to like this is technically a French movie. The language is English. These are all English speaking actors. And the energy to it just feels so much like an American aughts horror movie. Yeah. It's weird that it's considered a French movie. Yeah, because the French were definitely not making movies like this at this time at all. French horror movies during this era were uh, very dark and very serious. I mean, weren't they like really extremely gory too and fucked up? Yeah, this was New Extremity era (laughs) French filmmaking. This was when Martyrs and. Yeah, yeah, this was Martyrs time. ills and high tension right it was it was like stuff like that martyrs is the one i always think you of know, definitely like this stands out as like well that's not like this other thing for sure okay so beyond all that stuff you know as far as behind the scenes shit goes and everything else this movie had a budget of nine hundred thousand dollars and it went on to gross 77 million dollars in dvd sales alone like this movie was a big video store rental hit do you know why it wasn't theatrically released at least here in the states at all like even limited it was just an indie movie i mean it went to like a lot of festivals over in europe i saw where it had tons and tons of festival screenings and won festival awards but you know why it never really came over here theatrically i'm not sure because i mean i don't know it's a smaller in air quotes movie from a like scale standpoint but this easily could have gone theatrical considering everything else that was coming out at the time honestly it feels like a theatrical movie like like despite the whole movie basically taking place in a car and on a road in a dark forest yeah we we do poke fun at the aughts editing and clean nature of it but it does feel like a higher budget movie than it actually was yeah i mean i just feel like it probably never found a u.s distributor is the reason yeah but yeah this was a huge hit on home video beyond that i was looking at the rest of the crew involved the cinematographer alexander buono also shot green street hooligans and shot and directed a short film called Johnny Flinton, which was nominated for an Oscar for live action short the year it came out. Most recently, he has done episodes of Russian Doll and looks like he directed the 
bulk of documentary now on Netflix, which is really interesting because the entire point of that show is that every episode is kind of making fun of and aping the style of a different famous documentary. So, you know, he seems to be very versatile as far as the types of things he's doing. Now, on the other hand, the other person that I want to mention is the composer, Greg DeBells, who, woof, again, the music in this is rough. This is exactly the kind of music that drives me crazy from this era, but it was in so <laughs> much shit. Again, that like gothic chorus, but also to like a techno Eurobeat was just took me out of the movie a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like a more gothy version of like a pure moods CD. That's what it reminds me yeah. of. But this was another synchronicity that wilded me out a little bit. I've been listening to the audiobook for Tarantino's new nonfiction movie book called Cinema Speculation. For the most part, the book is good, especially if you're into like 60s and 70s counterculture movies and stuff like that. That's the majority of what he's focusing on. There are musings about certain movies or people that he kind of goes deep into, but one moment he was discussing Charles Bronson, and he mentions a movie he made in the late 80s called Kinjite Forbidden Subjects. I have never fucking heard of this movie to save my life, right? So I hear this movie, literally like 30 minutes later, I'm digging into this movie that we're discussing and looking through the IMDb, and like the only other major thing that this composer wrote for was this same exact fucking Charles Bronson movie called Kinjite. Just weird thing there that like I've literally never heard of this movie in my life, and now it's coming up twice in two completely unrelated things. As far as like the cast is concerned, like we already talked about before, yeah, we've brought up Ray Wise. He has been in a shit ton of stuff. We have already discussed him <laughs> on the show. Twin Peaks, baby. <laughs> yeah, definitely Twin Peaks. Everything Twin Peaks. Lots of TV. He was in the original Wes Craven Swamp Thing movie. He was in Paul Schrader's Cat People, Robocop, Season of Fear. He was in Excision, which we have an episode on a while back. I forgot it that he was in Excision as the principal who like yep. constantly like looks at the picture of George W. Bush like what do I do? <laughs> He's also in Suburban Gothic from that same director. He is in Adam Green's Digging Up the Marrow The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina as well as the short film AM 1200 which yep. we have both seen our buddy Jeff has mentioned several times we have brought up on the show. Arguably has one of the, like, the most jarring scene when uh, involving a gun and I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Lynn Shea as well. She, I believe, has come up on the show before. Likewise, she is one of those that guy, that gal actresses, right? She has been in a shit ton of stuff. She's such a good actress too, man. Partly because she is the sister of Bob Shea, the founder and CEO of New Line Pictures. So, you know, there might be a little bit of nepotism there, but, you know, she was always showing up in movies in these little small bits and pieces. And it's really interesting to see how her career has evolved because she has kind of become this staple of horror stuff. Some horror entity dubbed her the godmother of horror fairly recently. Just to give you an idea of the horror stuff she's been in specifically, Alone in the Dark, Nightmare on Elm Street, 
Critters 1 and 2, The Hidden, Amityville New Generation, New Nightmare, the Ouija movies, and the Insidious franchise. She's kind of the main character that all the Insidious franchise stuff is built around. That's wild that, you know, as a 70-year-old woman, she's the lead of this horror franchise. That said, I also fucking love her in all the 90s dumb comedies she was in as well, like Dumb and Dumber and Kingpin and There's Something About Mary where she is fucking hilarious. She also is one of the characters in a recent video game called The Quarry, which is really popular right now. I just picked up a copy of that for Heather for her birthday, so we're going to play through it pretty soon. But yeah, Lin Shea has been in a shit ton of stuff. So they're the main two. As far as the kids go... Marion is played by Alexandra Holden. Uh, She was in a lot of TV stuff. She was in a lot of kind of those 90s staples from cable like Dancer Texas, Pop 81, Ed TV, Drop Dead Gorgeous, Sugar and Spice. But she's been in some horror stuff in the last couple of years like Lovely Molly, Always Watching which is apparently a Marble Hornet story, speaking of weird internet urban legendy shit that kind of went mainstream. Richard, who is the douchey son, is played by Mick Kane. Oh, man. He was on some TV stuff. Uh, and when I say some TV stuff, it was just like one episode of Sister, Sister, one episode of Saved by the Bell, The New Generation. And he was a stand-in, uncredited for Justin Long in Drag Me to Hell. And I was like, damn, this guy has really not done a lot. Oh, wait. He was on The Bold and the Beautiful, which is a soap. Yeah. Hold on. Checks notes. From 1998 to 2017, 453 episodes. That's what this dude has been doing this whole time. Yeah, I mean, cash of those soap checks. Good for him. Yeah, why the fuck not? Brad is played by William Rosenfeld, and weirdly enough... William Rosenfeld? I, I read Billy Asher. Okay, no. Oh, as Billy Asher. We're both I'm right. going to leave this goof in. Yes, no. His name is William Rosenfeld. It looks like at the time he was acting under the name Billy Asher. Yeah. So that's interesting. Anyway, yeah, he really didn't do a ton of acting. Yeah, he only acted from 2000 to 2009, and all of it was as Billy Asher. Yeah, he didn't do a ton of acting, but it looks like he produced Zombievers. Hell yeah. (laughs) He directed a medical marijuana movie called The Green Standard, and then he co-wrote and starred in one of the only other movies directed by Jean-Baptiste André, who who is one of the two directors of this movie called Big Nothing, which that also sounded like a very generic crime movie. As I just out of curiosity was skimming, the Big Nothing actually has a kind of bonkers cast. It's David Schwimmer, Simon Pegg, Alice Eve, John Polito, what? <laughs> Natasha McElhen, Mimi Rogers, and fucking Julian Glover, a.k.a. General Veers and uh, Donovan from Indiana Jones. But uh, anyway, that's really all this guy has directed. Otherwise, he did a movie recently called Brotherhood of Tears, but that was kind of it. And the other director, Fabrice Canepa, did not direct anything else. This is the only movie that he's really involved in. So it's weird that William Rosenfeld kind of stuck around for a little bit after this movie to continue working with one of the directors. The Lady in White, 
looked really familiar to me. And it turns out, no shit, you've seen her all over the place growing up in the 90s because she was a model. She was the Michelob girl and she did stuff for every makeup and fashion group. So she's just one of those people that you vicariously saw her face all over the place constantly in the 90s. Her name is Amber Smith. Aside from all of her modeling, she got into acting and it's wild because she was in movies from like pretty interesting and idiosyncratic directors in small parts. She was in this movie starring Cher called Faithful, directed by Paul Mazursky. She was in The Funeral, which has a shit ton of people in it, directed by Abel Ferrara. She was in a Parva Streisand Jeff Bridges movie called The Mirror Has Two Faces that Streisand directed. She's in Private Parts, LA Confidential, She's in American Beauty, and she's in How High. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I thought in my head, wow, I really recognize her face. And it's because, yeah, no shit, she was on every magazine cover and makeup ad and everything. Michelob again from the 90s. Steve Valentine, who plays the man in black at the end of this movie, was also, again, he's one of those, like, that guy actors that you've seen his face on a bunch of stuff. He's in Mars Attacks. He's in Spider-Man 3. What stuck out to me was he is the voice of Harry in all the Uncharted games. And even more importantly, especially to my wife, he is the voice of Alistair in all the Dragon Age games. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> the last two cast people I will bring up, and this is just a like, why the fuck not? So the two guys at the very end of the movie, the two like roadside cleanup worker guys. There's a bit about them. I thought they were just kind of whatever. They are both totally that guy actors. So the first one is Jimmy F. Skaggs. Every fucking TV show from the 80s and 90s you can think of. Lethal Weapon, Pink Cadillac, Puppet Master, Blown Away, Hollow Man. The other guy is Clement Blake. Again, every fucking TV show you can think of from the 90s. Mouse Hunt, The Limey, which, Jesus Christ, I rewatched that recently. That movie's great. Magnolia, The One, Minority Report, Superbad, Walk Hard, which again, another synchronicity there, because Heather and I were literally just fucking listening to that soundtrack last night. And The Artist, which is maybe the, like, Academy Award movie from the last 25 years that has the absolute least cultural impact. So yeah, like both of those dudes have crazy weird careers for just being like completely unknown that guy actors. Yeah. Yeah. As far as behind the scenes stuff goes, I couldn't really find a ton about this movie. Like I couldn't really find a whole lot of interviews with the directors about, you know, how they came up with the story and what their influences were, any kind of shooting stories. But, you know, overall, like this seems to be a very small production. It was all shot in LA. Surprisingly enough, again, for this movie being French in air quotes. French. It was in L.A. <laughs> it was an American cast. It was shot in L.A. Sure, whatever. So, like, let's kind of get into, like, what we did like about this movie, because I feel like we still really haven't done that. I mean, 85 minutes long. <laughs> Perfect length. Perfect length for a horror movie. But let's just start off with the surface, because there's a lot of horror this movie addressed, both on the surface and deeper horrors that we all can relate to. But the surface horror of it is, you know, as they're traveling down this road, each time they get out of the car, something happens to one of the family, starting 
outing with the boyfriend of the sister. It always involves the woman in white or a hearse or both of them. And there's a lot of haunting imagery with the woman in white. The thing I appreciate is she never like distortion face gets like black eyes and like a howling mouth. None of the stuff that you hate. Yeah, that's stuff I hate. But like she looks like a woman who is eerie, ghostly and otherworldly. And she has like a single gash on her head. So you can kind of see that like something happened to her. The reveal with her infant, while you can kind of see it coming, is kind of a little bit shocking because you only like, again, this movie doesn't always show you like the horrific imagery that's on the screen. It does hinge on the reactions of that. Actors, despite most of this cast being weak, those moments are well done. The reaction of what they see. You catch a brief glimpse of the infant and it's ground beef with some teeth, basically, <laughs> for like that split second you see it, which is pretty fucking jarring. The whole idea of the woman in white, which is something I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot more movies that I just we haven't watched or I don't know about, but it feels like a, a concept that like we can all we all have heard stories about yeah. some regard or another, but like it doesn't feel like it has really been explored fully. I feel like in cinema or in stories there, in general, like there have been a good chunk of Lady in White movies. I mean, there is literally two movies I can think of off the top of my head that are called The Lady in White. So it, yeah, it has been explored. It just never and the woman in black and La Llorona. Those are all kind of like, I guess, variants of that. But but like the idea of a ghostly hitchhiker, someone that you pick up off the side of the road who looks kind of either in dated clothes or they're like soaked or they're a little bit bloody and they seem like they need help. You ask them like, hey, can I help you? Where do you need to go? They tell you where to go. And while you're driving there, you either hear them scream and then they're not there anymore or like they're not there anymore, but they left behind a watery imprint on your seat or left behind an article of clothing and you just had a ghostly hitchhiker like that's all stuff that we have all heard stories about, especially in America. And I'm sure all throughout the world that has like highway systems, just places that people travel. I mean, I was reading that even before the dawn of vehicles back in olden days, the idea of a traveling ghost or a ghostly traveler is just something that has been with us throughout history but the idea of specifically around the highway system and cars is always fascinating to me the woman in white storyline there are variations of it it doesn't always involve hitchhiking or a roadside but there are a lot of stories where like a woman who is dressed in like a white gown or even like a wedding dress is on the side of the road looking distressed uh you pick her up she tells you like to go to this place and she disappears sometime somewhere on the trip and or you go to the place she tells you to and it's like no longer there or it's whatever there's a lot of those kind of reports uh i was reading how there is reports of ghostly encounters near dallas throughout the 1900s there's literally a place called white rock lake park there's the lady of white rock lake and she is described as wearing a water-soaked 1930s evening dress and appears at night alongside the roadside of east lother drive witnesses claim the phantom has to be taken home on Gaston Avenue in Dallas before disappearing sometime during the ride and leaving behind the seat soaking wet. Well, there's also my favorite ghost of the road, which is fucking Large Marge from Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Large Marge sent me. Did you say Large Marge? She just dropped me off. That's possible. Large Marge. She's... It was ten years ago. On a night just like tonight. Why, tonight's the anniversary. 
Worst accident I ever seen. But that means the large Marge I was riding with was... Her ghost. And I want to say another good example of ghostly woman in white traveler is I want to say it's the very first episode of Supernatural has to do with a woman in white that is picking up men and killing them. And I think it's literally the pilot episode of Supernatural and that I remember that being a pretty good representation of this kind of ghost. Dug all that. I dug that that was like the thing stalking them. But the other thing that's interesting, the hearse, the image of the hearse. And like when when something happens to one of the family, they disappear. And then you see the hearse go by and you see them like they're like trapped in it. Yeah, trapped in the hearse hitting on the window. And you see it specifically with Brad and then the little brother. And that's really creepy fucking imagery. And then they, of course, discover like the mangled dead body of whoever that was down the road. And, And especially with the little brother, I really like the scene where you only see like that hand sticking up from the ground and it's like a charred remained of the brother's hand but you don't actually see the full corpse of the brother and you just see the reactions of the family to him knowing how comedic this movie had gotten by this point i was fully fully expecting one of them to like reach down to touch or grab the hand and it just and it comes off or some shit like that yeah i thought so too and then like later on the whole image with the mom after what happens to the mom they actually take her corpse and they have it in the car i mean they take all the corpses and throw them in the car which is both kind of hilarious but also really fucking dark the corpse of the mom when they take the sheet off of her towards the end like that was all really creepy So the actual like supernatural elements of this movie with the Grim Reaper traveling the roadside and this woman in white who, in my opinion, my like guess from this movie is she is enacting a bit of revenge before they're all taken to the afterlife, making them realize what happened to them, reliving their death, basically, before they're all taken away. And then I did like that end scene where it's just the daughter left. The hearse pulls up and then the woman in white appears behind her in another jump scare, by the way. And she's just like, your family's dead but he's not here for you. And then she gets in the car and she's the last one to be taken off. And then that's when the daughter wakes up. I thought that was all great because that's where you really fully realize Ray Wise nodded off, ran into that other car at the beginning, head on collision, killed the woman and her baby. The whole family, except for the daughter, was killed off too. That's all revealed. So that's all great. That's all the surface level stuff. And we could go on about the vanishing hitchhiker, urban legends and myths, which also, by the way, I was reading happened as far back as like the first record of a vanishing hitchhiker could be found like on a 400 year old manuscript so like it's been a while around a while we could go on about the woman in white ghosts that haunt roadside areas and paths you can look all that stuff up yourself though we could go on forever on those but then you have what the meat of this movie is really kind of capitalizing on which is very perfect for this being our first December movie like not quite the Christmas movie but like the moment where we're all traveling to like meet up with our family between Thanksgiving Christmas the holiday movie yeah 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 we're, we're seeing family members that we normally don't necessarily want to ever like see otherwise but we kind of have to because mom or dad likes this person wants to include them and they're like spouting off problematic political shit and you don't want to deal with yeah. it but you're stuck with them just that weird sense of obligation of you know well this is just what we do every year or well so and so is yeah. gonna feel really bad if they get left out and, and this is like the darker context we just don't know how much longer we have with XYZ person. Yeah. So, you know, we kind of have yeah, to totally. go and make sure that we're there, you know. And the fears of travel, too. Again, like that is a very, especially on a highway system yeah. and like back roads and everything, that isn't a very American 
style fear that you and I, especially Aaron, can relate to. Because like being in the southeast, being so close to so many major cities, we've done a lot of road tripping. Yeah. And I've done midnight drives like I've done overnight drives, 12 hour drives and stuff. And yeah, this movie very much capitalized on even on the interstates. Like there are moments in the interstate where it's you're the only one on the road and there's nothing but darkness and road ahead of you. Yep. Because even towards the end of this movie, when they're all becoming unhinged and like the dad's drinking, Lynn Shea is eating pie in the back. Ray Wise is crushing that bottle, by the way. Yeah. But like, think about like even during the holiday, because we have all heard stories and this has probably happened to both you and I, Aaron, at one point or another. You're home for the holidays. It's a full house. Everyone's drinking. It's getting towards the end. Someone brings up a childhood story and then it turns into an argument and like shit that normally wouldn't be said is said and feelings are hurt. And that's very much what happens in the later half of this movie. And it starts becoming really fucking uncomfortable. Yep. Not just stories that are painful and you go back and you remember them, but just the uncomfortableness of the life changing announcements that sometimes happen at family get togethers like, oh, so and so is like, oh, by the way, we're getting a divorce. So and so dropped out of school. I have cancer like that kind of shit. Like I remember. I remember a couple years ago, a bunch of my family got together, and this was kind of the aunts and uncles that live a little ways out, all got together at my grandmother's house. This was also like one of the first Christmases where Heather came with me to my family's Christmas. One of my aunts, bless her, who is super sweet, got up and just had this emotional moment. She's like, I want everybody to come in here. I have something to tell all of you. And I was just like, oh, Lord, fuck. Knowing that her mother, my great-grandmother, who's like the matriarch of that family, died miserably of breast cancer, I was fully expecting. I was 100% expecting her to be like, I have cancer. It's like stage four. I'm going to be dead in like a month. And I was just like, fuck, what is about to happen? What's about to happen? We all go in there, and that is the tension from everybody. That vibe is going through the fucking room, you can tell. And then literally she was just like, I just love you all so much, and the Lord wanted me to tell you that, and I just hope everybody has a good year. And we were all just like, God, fucking damn it, like, fuck you, <laughs> fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. Not not quite, yeah. not quite fuck you, but it was definitely just, God damn it, we thought you were seriously going to be like, I'm dying in a month. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's the kind of stuff that happens at holidays. Well, they even take a beat in this movie for that because there's that scene where she goes, I'm pregnant. And then the brother who like doesn't know what to do also kind of wants to one up her just goes, I smoke pot. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, exactly. Right. So like it's definitely like a lot of the reason for there being anxiety, not just that relationships between different members of the family can be fraught, but just the like, oh God, what are we going to have to like deal with? Like, how is my life going to fundamentally be different after I get back home from this family gathering? Like what dynamic is going to be changed yeah. going forward? Well, and, and this was something that I thought about after watching the movie. Think about if this road trip actually did go off without a hitch. Like they got to the parents' house. What the movie sets up is that Ray Weiss and Lynn Shay's characters are in a loveless marriage. Yeah. And they're just kind of together for circumstance and neither of them really wants to get out, but they both cheated on each other. She cheated on him with with his best friend and possibly their son is his best friend's son and yeah. not his. 
it's hinted that they both are aware. I mean, Lin Shay straight up says she knows that he cheated on her, and I imagine he has some inkling that the same thing has happened. Man, that whole like line delivery when he tells her after like everyone's dead except him and the daughter, and he tells her about one day his best friend came up and asked him about I'm in love with a married woman, what do I do? And he said, Go for it. And then like weeks later, he's the last thing he ever talked about with his friend was his friend said she's not gonna leave him because of their daughter. Yep. And he realizes like two and two together, that they yeah. were talking about me. That was such a gut punch. And again, that's like the tonal whiplash. Like I wanted more of that. I wanted to commit to more of that or commit more to Lin Shay eating pie in the backseat. But <laughs> you know, that's neither here nor there. Imagine they made it to the parents. Early in the movie, you find out that the daughter is actually planning on breaking up with the boyfriend, but the boyfriend reveals to the lady in white when it's just the two of them in the car, they're like, I have this ring. I'm gonna ask to marry yeah. her. And she's pregnant, you know, it could be his or it could be someone else's. Like the movie never like says that. She just only says I'm pregnant. The brother is a terror. He's obviously really fucking mean to the boyfriend, uses problematic language, talks back, like is just a real shitty teenage boy to everybody. He would have just not helped any of the tension throughout this entire thing. And then Ray Wise through the movie mentions that he hates Lynn Shay's family, her brother specifically and her parents or her mom rather which then leads to like one of the other gut punch dark fucked up moments is like when Lin Shay's character is dying later on she talks about seeing first the face of his best friend and then seeing the face of her dad so it's implied that her dad had passed and like it was her dad meeting her in the afterlife right like that's what you got out of that yeah Yeah, so like there's all this imagine them going there and the brother tries to propose or the boyfriend tries to propose and the sister's like uh we were gonna break up by the way I'm pregnant just that alone would ruin the entire like, Christmas events and not adding all the tension between uh, Ray Wise's character and Lin Shay's and the little their son. It's something all of us can relate to. I don't think I've ever heard or experienced anything that drastic, like someone trying to propose and it being shot down at like a Christmas gathering. But like I've definitely like heard or been part of some really awkward conversations and revelations around the holidays. Yeah, this is something that I like live my life by. But man. Don't ever propose to anybody at a public gathering. Just don't. Just don't do it. Sports game. Uh, family gather. Like, don't don't ever do that. Don't ever. I, I, I don't know. Like, it just, that fills me with so much anxiety. Dude, have you ever looked up videos of failed proposals at sports games? Oh, it's, it's, it's the worst. Dude, it's it, like, so fucking bad. It right? makes my skin crawl. And that's what a lot of what this movie is like, really like looking at and examining. Yeah, don't ever fucking do that. Don't announce we're getting divorced. Don't announce we're getting married. Don't announce we're having a baby. Don't announce anything of a personal nature like that at a public event. Just fucking don't. And I know a lot of people are going to be like, well, it might not be always bad and blah, blah. No, you're actively pulling attention to yourself, which is kind of a selfish, weird thing to do. And you don't know how that's going to go. You just don't. That could backfire in so many different fucking ways. And so, yeah, that's the kind of thing that like makes my anxiety go fucking crazy whenever I see people doing that. I will say I have heard baby reveals around the holidays, and most of those are like really happy and successful. But as far as like wedding proposals and stuff like that, or like I have cancer, like maybe save that for like the next day or two after (laughs) yeah i don't know like there's just so many things like that that could just go sideways so yeah like save that shit 
for later. <laughs> yeah. And then we didn't really talk about it too much, but I really did dig the imagery of it because I like the image of the hearse pulling away kind of near a mangled corpse and you see the person trapped in the hearse. That was really creepy. The couple jump scares with the woman in white, even though she doesn't have fucked up makeup or anything, were really extremely effective, uh, even if the acting by her and some of the cast wasn't. The ending is a mixed bag, but the good stuff I really dug. Again, the image of being trapped on an endless road and like that's their limbo. That's their purgatory. Yeah, but they don't know they're dead yet. That's all pretty creepy and cool. The endless road of just that constant forest. It was a little kind of eye rolly, like when you kept seeing the sign for Marcotte or whatever it was called. Yeah. Again, I would have dug the reveal that, well, all this did kind of happen uh, with the note if they didn't also unceremoniously crumple the note and then and sweep it away but i really do like this movie i think i'm so critical of it because i like so much of it i guess it's also just a function of the fact that like you said we don't really have video rental stores anymore we have streaming sites you know and, and it's kind of that same idea of when you're looking for something to watch you see that box you're like hey what is this you pick it up you read it, you're like sure let's go let's try this one out and see what this ends up being Movies that have low risk, but potentially very high rewards, I guess. It's like, that's maybe a weird way to put it, but that's kind of how this movie feels to me. It reminds me a lot of the stuff that we would pick up at our movie rental place just because it sounds interesting, it's a dollar, and you have a free Wednesday night. Fuck it. Grab this. Yeah. And it surprises you. Yeah. And this movie is a surprise. This movie really is. Going into it not knowing what it is and it having a rocky start, but an intriguing start that kept me watching. By the end, I was like, this is a movie I'd like to revisit in the future. Yes, it's flawed, but I really enjoyed it. And it, it has a lot to say, surprisingly, about family dynamic around the holidays and everything. You know, and like not to knock streaming horror because one of my favorite movies of this year is Prey, which is a streaming horror movie. But then on the other hand, I would say, if, say that movie came out in the 90s or mid-aughts, that would have gotten a theatrical release probably because it would have been just enough sure. of a thing that it would have reached at like at least mid-tier production value level horror movie that a lot of the the horror movies like this and of the 90s and early aughts getting enough of a theatrical release i maybe that would have elevated a little more in terms of the visuals because i know prey the only knock i have against it is the visuals but otherwise it's an amazing movie so like yeah even though like i'm dunking on streaming horror right now streaming horror is fantastic and you know it's more accessible for everybody now and it is great that horror is so well regarded and a lot of it is because of the streaming nature of so many movies nowadays um and horror really is benefiting from it but at the same time, we just don't have these kind of movies anymore. If you want to see like what we've just been describing, like Dead End is a pretty solid watch. I think it's worth watching. It, it, it's a movie that I've thought about a lot since watching, and I, I plan to oh, revisit definitely, it. Yeah. Just know going in that there's a little bit of problematic language. The soundtrack is rough, yeah. and the tonal whiplash <laughs> is kind of there too, but it's a great movie. Like I, I really enjoyed this. A movie that kind of came out of left field that neither of us had seen, and we both really enjoyed. And yeah, I think more eyes need to get on this movie i am glad that it was so successful dvd wise after it did drop because it is a bummer that it never came out into theaters i'll also say too this movie is readily available i watched it on tubi for free <laughs> that's what i was about to say baby yeah. it's on amazon prime it is on tubi for free it is a very cheap rental or purchase via itunes so this movie is easily accessible definitely check it out and uh yeah it was kind of an interesting off the beaten path haha <laughs> 
Has this gotten a Blu-ray release? Honestly, I have no idea. Obviously, it made a lot of money via DVD, but I have no idea like if it has gone beyond that. I've not seen a boutique release of this in the last couple of years. I know for sure because I would remember it. The quality on Tubi is pretty good. So yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I don't know if it's available in a modern format. But either way, it's available via streaming releases. So you have no excuse to not check it out, especially if you're just cruising for something to watch this holiday season. So cool, cool. Well, uh, yeah, that is going to be it for this episode episode of watch if you dare a horror movie podcast hosted by me your movie monster boy aaron and my cravenly co-host Craven, yeah craven craven co-host derek uh in which we dissect horror movies their themes and discuss the themes fears phobias for newbies and horror junkies alike Please check out all of our future episodes and all of our past episodes at every podcatcher imaginable at this point. Please follow us and leave positive reviews on Apple Podcasts primarily, but also Podchaser, Podbean. All those spots are killing it right now. Thank you all very much for the support. You can find us on social media at Watch If You Dare on Twitter, which Lord knows that's a shit show right now. So uh, (laughs) we'll figure it out. (laughs) Don't expect us to get a blue check mark anytime soon because we haven't had one this whole time and it's been fine. Anyway, yeah, we're there. We're on Facebook. We've also got our Spotify music playlist that is pinned to the top of the Twitter and Facebook as well. That is just a collection of spoopy horror inspired tunes or things directly from horror movies that we have put together over the years. So that's like a good mix of stuff for you to check out. As always, big thanks to my little brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for the music bumps at the beginnings and the ends of all of our episodes. Uh, you can find all of his stuff on Bandcamp, at Opossums, at Big Clown, at Party Gator. So he's got all of his stuff there. Check his music out, throw him a couple of bucks, and uh, yeah. Get some good tunes. Should we save some pie for Sally? She's dead. Oh, okay.